Welcome to the March 31st, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the role of the PBX1 Fox M1 axis in multiple myeloma, learn more about the pathobiology of SF3B1 splicing factor mutations in myelodysplastic syndromes with ring sideroblasts, and discuss mortality rates due to pulmonary arterial hypertension in patients with beta thalassemia. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Systems Medicine Dissection of Chromosome 1Q AMP Reveals a Novel PBX1 Fox M1 Axis for Targeted Therapy in Multiple Myeloma by Nicolaus Trasanidis from Imperial College London in the United Kingdom and colleagues. Genetic amplification of the long arm of chromosome 1, or chromosome 1Q AMP, is one of the most common copy number aberrations that confers a poor prognosis in cancer. Chromosome 1Q AMP designates the presence of four or more copies of chromosome 1 and is found in approximately 30 to 40 percent of multiple myeloma patients at diagnosis. In fact, along with translocation T414 and DEL17P, chromosome 1Q AMP is one of the three markers associated with adverse overall and progression-free survival. Previous studies have identified several chromosome 1Q21 genes associated with adverse prognosis in multiple myeloma. Several genes that extend beyond chromosome region 1Q21 have also been implicated in the biology and prognosis of the disease. Because the long arm of chromosome 1 encodes more than 2,200 genes, the identification of a specific driver of poor outcomes has remained a challenge. The authors employed a comprehensive systems medicine approach to resolve the 3D genome landscape of chromosome 1Q AMP and to integrate it with multi-omics of multiple myeloma patient data sets. Specifically, they combined genomic, epigenomic, and RNA sequencing data with genetic variables from three multiple myeloma studies. Bioinformatics analyses identified 103 genes associated with adverse prognosis in chromosome 1Q amplified multiple myeloma. The authors identified 1Q22 and 1Q23.3 as the two cytogenetic bands that, relative to their gene density, contained the highest number of candidate adverse prognosis genes, with 1Q23.3 displaying the highest association with adverse prognosis. Amongst 1Q23.3 genes is PBX1, a homeobox domain transcription factor that plays an important role in promoting cancer cell survival, metastasis, and drug resistance. Further analysis of a multiple myeloma research foundation clinical trial dataset of almost 900 patients confirmed PBX1 as a marker of high-risk disease, with its amplification significantly correlating with its overexpression. In turn, PBX1 overexpression was associated with high-risk clinical features, high myeloma plasma cell proliferative index, progressive and or relapsed disease, and worse overall survival. Using functional assays, the authors were able to confirm that PBX1 was both necessary and sufficient to drive myeloma proliferation, 
transcriptomic and chromatin binding experiments demonstrated that PBX1 regulates a network of genes by binding to promoters and enhancers. This network includes FOXM1 and E2F12 that regulate the cell cycle. Additional experiments revealed that together, PBX1 and FOXM1 activate a proliferative gene signature, which confers an adverse prognosis in many different types of cancer. The authors then utilized an inhibitor of FOXM1, thiostreptin, and a recently developed novel PBX1 inhibitor, T417, to demonstrate that pharmacological inhibition of the PBX1 FOXM1 axis selectively inhibits the growth of chromosome 1Q amplified myeloma and solid tumor cells. Importantly, the activity of T417 was dependent on the presence of extra copies of chromosome 1 and was not limited to myeloma cells, since cells from several solid tumors that also harbor chromosome 1 gains were sensitive to this agent. Taken together, this study uncovered a novel role of the PBX1-FOXM1 regulatory axis in high-risk chromosome 1 amplified multiple myeloma and demonstrates preclinical effectiveness of the PBX1 inhibitor T417. In an accompanying commentary, Timothy Schmidt from the University of Wisconsin notes that therapeutic targeting of dysregulated cell proliferation pathways and aberrant genomic drivers remains a major unmet need in multiple myeloma, since currently available therapies mostly target normal plasma cells. In light of these challenges, the findings of Trasanidis and colleagues lay the groundwork for a promising new therapeutic strategy based on neutralizing and targeting a key regulator of proliferation in chromosome 1Q amplified myeloma and other cancers, and open the door to tumor sensitization to other therapies. Schmidt wonders if future strategies could also incorporate the newer immunotherapeutic approaches, since the genes repressed by PBX1 are associated with interferon responses. He suggests that future studies should investigate whether chromosome 1 copy number gain versus amplification and or co-occurring cytogenetic abnormalities such as T414 influence the susceptibility of myeloma cells to PBX1 FOXM1 pathway inhibition. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Coordinated Missplicing of TMEM14C and ABCB7 Causes Ring Sideroblast Formation in SF3B1 Mutant Myelodysplastic Syndrome by Courtney Clough from the University of Washington in Seattle and colleagues. Sideroblastic anemias are a heterogeneous group of inherited and acquired disorders characterized by ring sideroblasts, which are erythroid precursors harboring perinuclear iron-laden mitochondria. Using a Prussian blue iron stain of bone marrow aspirates, they appear as unusual accumulations of iron-positive granules surrounding the nucleus like a ring. Ring sideroblasts are commonly found in two types of blood disorders myelodysplastic syndromes with ring sideroblasts, or MDSRS, and X-linked sideroblastic anemia associated with ALAS2 mutations. Prior studies have identified a strong association between MDSRS and somatic mutations in the core spliceosome factor SF3B1, 
research has shown that SF3B1 change-of-function mutations promote the usage of alternative 3' splice sites and lead to accumulation of aberrant transcripts in MDS and other cancers. Moreover, SF3B1 mutant MDS is believed to be a distinct subtype of MDS marked by ineffective erythropoiesis and ring sideroblast formation, lower incidence of leukemic progression, and higher overall survival. Despite evidence of a strong genotype-phenotype association, the mechanisms underlying dysregulated iron metabolism and ring sideroblast formation in SF3B1 mutant MDS remain poorly understood. In the current study, investigators aim to gain a better understanding of the molecular mechanisms underlying sideroblast formation in SF3B1 mutant MDS using a novel patient-derived induced pluripotent stem cell model of SF3B1 mutant MDS. The authors first developed and tested the model's ability to recapitulate ring sideroblast formation during in vitro erythroid differentiation. Ring sideroblasts were stained and visualized with electron microscopy, and RNA sequencing was used to quantify aberrant transcripts, the products of misplicing, throughout erythroid differentiation. For the first time, they were able to demonstrate that their newly designed induced pluripotent stem cell model of SF3B1 mutant MDS successfully recapitulates robust ring sideroblast formation during in vitro erythroid differentiation. Furthermore, RNA sequencing experiments revealed that mutant SF3B1 results in approximately 100 misspliced genes. Interestingly, aberrant transcripts included the proposed ring sideroblast driver genes TMEM14C, PPOX, and ABCB7. All three misplicing events led to a significant reduction of protein expression which occurred via 5' untranslated region alteration and reduced translation efficiency for TMEM14C. Importantly, functional rescue of TMEM14C and ABCB7 markedly decreased the production of ring sideroblasts, and their combined rescue nearly completely eliminated their formation. However, functional rescue of the non-rate-limiting enzyme PPOX did not have a significant effect on ring sideroblast formation. Taken together, these findings demonstrate that coordinated misplicing of mitochondrial transporters TMEM14C and ABCB7 by mutant SF3B1 sequesters iron inside the mitochondria, leading to sideroblast accumulation. In an accompanying commentary, Mario Cazzola from the University of Pavia in Italy notes that the study by Clau and colleagues represents a prototype of functional studies that should be conducted in splicing factor mutant neoplasms to understand how abnormal splicing leads to abnormal cell differentiation and maturation. Such studies should aim to not only decipher disease pathogenesis, but also develop novel effective therapies. Gazzola believes that a causal relationship between mitochondrial iron overload and increased propensity for apoptosis is very likely in SF3B1 mutant MDS, but notes that future studies should verify this relationship. It would also be of particular interest to investigate how lispatercept, which is approved for MDS-RS, improves red cell production in these patients.
in the final segment of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Mortality in Beta-Thalassemia Patients with Confirmed Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension on Right Heart Catheterization by Valeria Pinto from Galliera Hospital in Genoa, Italy, Khaled Musanam from Thalassemia Center for Geo Medical City, Abu Dhabi, UAE, and colleagues. Pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH, is associated with an increased risk of right-sided heart failure and death in patients with beta-thalassemia. Prior studies have reported PAH prevalence rates exceeding 50% in this patient population, with higher rates observed in non-transfusion-dependent, splenectomized, and older adults. Several risk factors are associated with an increased risk of PAH, including chronic anemia, iron overload, hemolysis, vasculopathy, and hypocoagulability. Despite worse outcomes of beta-thalassemia patients with PAH, this complication remains poorly recognized and treatment options remain limited. Previously, the authors utilized right heart catheterization to arrive at a 2.1% true prevalence rate of PAH in a large multicenter study of beta-thalassemia patients. This prevalence rate is more than 10,000 times greater than in the general population. In the current study, they provide long-term data on mortality in this subgroup of patients with invasively confirmed PAH. The original trial was a multicenter cross-sectional study of beta-thalassemia patients followed at eight comprehensive care centers taking part in the Italian Webthal project. 1,309 adults, 18 years or older, with beta-thalassemia major or intermedia, were enrolled between January 2012 and January 2013. Study subjects could not have chronic restrictive lung disease, or a left ventricular ejection fraction less than or equal to 50%. The patients were divided into three groups based on systolic pulmonary artery pressure readings. Pulmonary hypertension unlikely pulmonary hypertension possible, and pulmonary hypertension likely. This follow-up study followed 24 patients, 12 male and 12 female, with confirmed PAH on right-sided catheterization until March 2021, death or loss to follow-up. The median patient age and the median duration of follow-up were 46.5 years and 4 years, respectively. 13 patients died during the observation period, yielding a mortality rate of 54.2%. 10, or 41.7%, of patients died due to PAH. Right-sided heart failure was the cause of death in 10 patients and pulmonary embolism in one patient. Median survival time was 9 years. Cumulative PAH-related mortality-free survival estimates at 1, 2, and 5 years were 78%, 65 percent, and 60 percent, respectively. The majority of patients who died due to PAH were splenectomized and had beta-thalassemia intermedia. Interestingly, there were no statistically significant differences in thalassemia diagnosis, splenectomy status, hemoglobin and serum ferritin levels, demographics, or functional status between patients who died due to PAH and those who did not. Baseline echocardiography and right heart catheterization findings were also comparable between the two groups. However, there was a statistically significant difference in the median absolute change in systolic pulmonary artery pressure 
between patients who died due to PAH and those who did not, plus 6.5 versus minus 21.6 millimeters of mercury with a p-value of 0.024. On receiver operating characteristic curve analysis, the relative change in systolic pulmonary artery pressure was a strong predictor of PAH-related mortality with a relative change of minus 25.6% having 100% sensitivity, and a relative change of plus 12% having 100% specificity to predict PAH-related mortality. The authors further found that 21 of 24 patients received treatment for PAH following their diagnosis, with 14, or 58.3%, receiving a single agent, and 7, or 29.2%, receiving two agents. The crude PAH-related mortality rate was 38.1% in patients receiving any PAH-related therapy. The mortality rates were 66.7%, 42.9%, and 28.6% in those patients who received no treatment, single, and double agents, respectively. The authors concluded that their findings confirmed the detrimental impact of PAH in patients with beta-thalassemia, irrespective of the underlying patient profile. Although their study was not designed to evaluate the impact of therapy on PAH-related mortality, it demonstrated that the use of pharmacologic agents was associated with a lower mortality rate. This points to a need for additional randomized trials to evaluate agents and combinations targeting PAH in beta thalassemia. In an accompanying commentary, John Wood, from the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, notes that the study by Pinto and colleagues presents several key findings. First, that pulmonary arterial hypertension is quite deadly, even with subsystemic pressures. Second, that PAH is undertreated in thalassemia once recognized, and third, that change in predicted pulmonary arterial pressure by echocardiography was the only significant predictor of survival. Wood proposes therapeutic guidelines for PAH informed by the Webthal data and categorization of patients as high risk or low risk. Because Webthal data suggest that therapeutic response to treatment was more predictive of survival than initial pulmonary artery pressure, Wood recommends that therapy should be up-titrated with the goal of lowering predicted systolic pulmonary artery pressure by at least 25%, even if multiple agents are necessary to achieve this. Wood also believes that consortia studies and patient registries are the only cost-effective ways of studying clinical outcomes in beta-thalassemia. Until such studies are completed, hematologists should diligently screen their patients for PAH, instruct them how to manage the risk factors, and refer the high-risk individuals to PAH specialists. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.